Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, this morning we have this tremendous opportunity to be able to pause, collect our thoughts, and prepare our hearts and our minds for communion, receiving the bread and the cup. And I was thinking as I was uh, planning ahead as to what this Sunday was going to look like, because we like to do these kinds of things, launching into a new season of the year, that Psalm 22 would be one of the more powerful expressions of the way in which we'd be able to understand the significance of the cross, because it was written roughly 1,000 years prior to Jesus Christ walking the soil of Palestine, poetically, yet prophetically. These verses are going to create a picture in your mind of what took place on that cross. You're going to find it utterly astounding that what is being described would in fact be penned, developed, 1,000 years roughly prior to Jesus Christ dying. What I want you to see is the tremendous correspondence between what's described here in these verses and what took place on that cross, what took place around that cross, and what was uttered upon that cross by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm told we're not going to have uh, images and words behind me as I'm speaking this morning. Maybe that's good. It's going to keep us centered in God's Word, reflecting upon God's will. Let me begin reading in verse 1 going to read up to verse 21, and what that's going to do for us is to set the stage, and I want you to be looking at aspects, correspondence, correlations between what's described here and what took place when Jesus Christ died for our sins. Here we go, 22 verse 1, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are You're the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. There is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. 
I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted away with me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. Will my strength come quickly to help me? Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now he's speaking poetically. He is also speaking prophetically. What we want to do now is to be able to take these thoughts and relate them to the cross of Jesus Christ and understand how we relate to that cross as well. We're going to start, of course, by going to our Lord in prayer. Now, our fathers, we're coming before you. We're coming before you as people who entered into this world sinful by nature, separated from God, alienated from you, Nothing in us meriting salvation. No work of ours capable of securing salvation. What is needed desperately is grace and grace alone. Unmerited work on your behalf for us. Intervening, bringing a life to the deadness of our souls. We realize that what we are looking at in these verses speaks powerfully to what took place on that cross and gives us a greater appreciation for the significance of our Lord's sufferings. You know our needs. You know the struggles we face and the sins we've committed. Yet you love us so much you sent Jesus to die for us. So, Father, as you warm these hearts, as we engage our minds, we want you to know again we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Mahatma Gandhi of India was once asked by some traveling missionaries to describe in song their most significant and most important beliefs. Missionaries looked at one another, and after pausing for just a few seconds, one of them burst out and sung, to which the others joined in. When I survey the wondrous cross, One thousand years before Jesus Christ died on that cross, 
David himself penning Psalm 22 for a choir master and others to be able to apply musically to lift our hearts in worship. Challenged us to survey that wondrous cross. So we're going to do that for these next few moments together, poetically and yet prophetically, because astoundingly, what you and I find here is that though penned roughly 1,000 years prior, there is such high level of correspondence that it grabs our attention and forces us to say, if God 1,000 years in advance could explain that degree of detail which came to fulfillment at and around the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the God we ought to be putting our faith and trust in as our Savior, as our Lord. What I want to do with you is to look very carefully at these 31 verses, this song the psalm. We're going to survey this wondrous cross together, and there are two significant themes that I want you to join with me, with my heart, as we meditate upon together. The first flows out of verse 1 down through verse 21, and I'm going to put it like this and restate it. Number one, we're challenged to meditate upon the promised sufferings of Christ. Meditate now with me upon the promised sufferings of Christ. Promised because 1,000 years these sufferings were already being prophesied poetically in these verses. And notice how it begins in verse 1. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and am not silent. There are three types of suffering that I am able to spot with you in these verses. In verse 1 down through the verse 5, there's what we're going to call together Relational suffering. It's where Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity, says, in essence, I am experiencing alienation. I'm experiencing ultimate separation. I have had complete, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, unbroken union and love with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And yet now, here I am, and I have to cry out poetically and prophetically, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word my here stresses in the Hebrew the emphasis of relationship. The emphasis is upon the first note, my, which is repeated twice for the idea of you and I need to understand the degree of intimacy found here. But here's what interests us next. He does not say, my Jehovah, or my Yahweh, in Psalm 22. Yahweh is the relational name for God. 
Instead, he uses the Hebrew word El for Elohim. Why? In the New Testament, when Jesus Christ would take this and cry out on that cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What would have gripped his disciples at that point is that Jesus had always referred to first member of the Trinity as Father. This is the only time he utters God. What's happening? Notice the tremendous conflict between the word my, which is highly relational, and the name God, not Father, not Yahweh, God, which interestingly enough is highly judicial. the name of God used to execute judgment. So now he is merging together the relational and the judicial. He's saying, in essence, judgment is coming down upon sin, yet he is the sinless one. How could the my relational and God, not Yahweh, not Father at this point, uttered judicial, merge together except to be able to say, this sufferer was suffering as a substitute not in his sins, but for my sins, on your sins, you see. It's personal. Now, the fourth statement on that cross was uttered by Jesus with these words. He was obviously meditating upon Psalm 22 as he was crucified. You ever find yourself in your most intense struggles in life, Reflecting upon the Psalms? If you do, you're not alone. Your Savior was meditating upon Psalm 22 in his time of ultimate distress. Now what's fascinating is that as he cried out, My God, my God, when thousand years later from when David penned this, Why have you forsaken me? Darkness had descended upon the landscape from 12 till 3 in the afternoon. In his perfect timing, he uttered these statements, these words, not when it was still light, but once it had become dark. It was as if all of nature was illustrating at this point this ultimate alienation, this ultimate separation which is occurring here. My God, my God. And then he begins with why next. He doesn't say, why me, God? He says, my God, why? When you're under ultimate forms of distress, do you begin with why? Or do you begin with my Jesus is allowing these words to minister to his heart on that cross. Words that so transcend David's own personal experiences, sufferer though he was. My God, my God, why? This is not the cry of distrust. 
This is the cry of distress. Whenever you are about to cry out with the why, make sure you precede it with the my. And whenever you find yourself in ultimate distress, recognize you can experience distress and still not exhibit distrust. You can trust in the midst of the distress. And in that ultimate experience of alienation and separation, Jesus now takes these words and transfers them 1,000 years later into the midst of that darkened hour. Why have you forsaken me? Forsaken carries with it the idea of alienation, separation. But then he goes on further. David now pens, why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, downbeat again. My God. Now notice the extremes of time. I cry out by day, but you do not answer. You ever have that sense of silence from the heavens? Maybe we'll try night. Maybe I'll get more of an audience in the evening when it's more reflective periods of conversation. But by night, I'm not silent. In other words, day and night, there is this deafening silence in the midst of this dark and hour. What do we make of that? Maybe Pinkus Zuckerman could help us. He was a classical violinist, and he taught classes at the Aspen Music Festival. And students from all over the world would gather together, and they would take lessons, perform in front of audiences, and Zuckerman would, at the end of the performance, critique what would take place, offer recommendations, suggestions, and pick up his violin and begin to play the piece so that they would have a better understanding next time around of how to do this. But then that day came when a young violinist, towards the end of the program, got up to play his piece. And it was so astounding as people listened carefully what was happening. It almost sounded like Zuckerman himself. And when he sat down, tremendous applause. Then it got quiet as everybody waited for Zuckerman. Zuckerman picked up his violin, placed it under his chin, took the bowl, brought it to the violin, and paused. Paused. Removed the bowl and took the violin and placed it back down the violin case. And everybody stood and applauded in a deafening, deafening round of ovation to explain and express their gratitude for what they had just heard. An outbreak of deafening applause and appreciation for the Master Supreme deafening silence. 
Because the greatest ovation was the silence of Zuckerman. There is an ovation of silence now. God's word is not being heard, but it's not as though God's word is void. There's a delay, but there is not a denial. So what does Jesus do now as he reflects upon this 22nd Psalm in the darkness from 12 to 3 in the afternoon? What comes next are words of reassurance from the pen of the psalmist. In verse 3, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, David would write. You're the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Three times the word trust appears in these verses. What's your trust level in the midst of your distress? What's interesting is that the psalmist at this point says, okay, if I am not hearing at this point from God, then I'll turn back and remind myself of the testimony of prior people who trusted in their Lord in the times of their distress. That's what the psalmist is doing here. In you our fathers put their trust, he reminds himself in verse 4. They trusted, you delivered them. They cried to you, were saved. In you the trusted were not disappointed. In other words, are you able to take the testimony of other people's experiences in faith and apply them to your circumstances when you find yourself in your own extremes of distress? This is what's happening here. So verses 1 down through verse 5 describe relational suffering. He, he expresses himself with the mice and the wise in verses 1 and 2, but then he counters with a yet you in verse 3, 4, and 5, which you and I have to do time and again. Yet you are, yet you have, and you get it right with God. Now, there's a second form of suffering that Christ would endure. Not only the relational suffering of verses 1 down through verse 5, but the verbal suffering of verse 6 down through verse 11. You and I hear of abusive relationships, verbal abuse, but look at this. You see how self-defeated this psalmist almost seems at this point in his description of his his own self-identity and worth. But I'm a worm, not a man. That's how he feels poetically. Scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. What I want you to see here is the way in which all these verses are now being followed up with with prophetic fulfillments. 
Like Matthew 27, verse 45 through 46. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The relational suffering. But now in verses 6 through 11, in the verbal suffering, Matthew 27, verse 27 through 31. Listen to this. Write this down next to, for instance, verse 7 in Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. Write down Matthew 27, verse 27 through 31, and listen to this. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole company of the soldiers around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, knelt in front of him, and and mocked him. Poetically, prophetically, Psalm 22 gets transferred into into that very experience of Christ where David would write in verse 7 of this 22nd Psalm, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him, they say sarcastically. And yet, what did Matthew write in Matthew 27, 41 through 44? In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. Doesn't verse 8 of Psalm 22 read, He trusts in the Lord? Let the Lord rescue him, the mockers shout out. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Do you see the prophetic correspondence? Brilliantly, Poetically, David now takes these thoughts. Jesus on that cross retrieves these thoughts, applies them to the hour at hand. In the pain of your moment, do you take the thoughts of Scripture and apply them to the hour at hand? He needs some reassurance. He needs another yet you. We saw it in verse 3. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. We see another statement of reassurance coming our way in verse 9. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. That's sovereign grace. Here's what fascinates me next. Even my, at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you 
been my God. Twice he speaks of his mother. No statement is made of his father. We know that David obviously experienced, as we studied last week, some form of alienation from his father, Jesse. When you see that name, you think of alienation when it comes to David. Separation. But transfer it now to Jesus Christ, and you realize twice now, poetically, speaks of mother, does not speak of father. Why? Joseph wasn't his father, biologically. Legally, yes, biologically, no. There's a heavenly father. But Christ does not cry out, my father, but rather, my God. And so now what we find here is even a subtle allusion to virgin birth. Relational suffering, 1 through 5. Verbal suffering, 6 through 11. Physical suffering, 12 through 21. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. This is the Golan Heights in modern day Israel terminology. Notice here the wild animals that are that are encompassing him, and he's using poetic imagery here to describe this is the way people seem to be attacking him at that point, like wild animals. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. There are archaeological evidences and findings of the ways in which shepherds in that region, we know as the Golan Heights, had to fend off lions. And of course, David had a similar experience in his days of shepherding. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart's turned to wax. It's melted away with me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. He's just piling it on, isn't he? You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men, they've encircled me. And then here it comes. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Next to those words, jot down John 20, verse 25 and 27. And listen to this. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe it, said Thomas. And then Jesus came along. He does that, you know. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. 
they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare, gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Next to that, jot down Matthew 27, verse 35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. If your God can handle that degree of detail and announce it 1,000 years prior, your God can handle the details of your life. This is sovereign providence at work. Poetically, prophetically. You're meditating upon the promised sufferings of Christ. The relational in 1 through 5. The verbal in 6 through 11. Physical in 12 through 21. But you're going to notice with me now that suddenly the mood changes. David is a great artist. He's brilliantly producing word pictures. And there is this transformation from from the intense trials to the extensive triumph. We've got resurrection on hand beginning in verse 22. We said in compassing verses 1 through 21, we're challenged to meditate upon the promised sufferings of Christ. And we've done that in the three aspects. But now in verse 22 through verse 31, meditate upon the promised success of Christ. Notice he says, I will declare your name to my brothers. After all this, which is exactly what happened subsequent to Resurrection. He went to the twelve and beyond. And he spoke truth to them. And notice here in verse 23, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Where it says, all you descendants of Jacob, that's the Jewish people, the Israelites. In this promised success of Christ, Notice how in verses 22 down through verse 26, the Lord's name is declared. The Lord's name is declared. Here is the witness of Christ's work. Now, if you allow for your eyes to go down even further, you get down now to verse 27. And it reads, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And you say, Didn't Paul write to the Jew first and also to the Gentile? He did. 
And poetically, that's in essence exactly what David is doing here. Because in verse, in verse 23, he said, All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, Jew first. Sequentially, over the course of time, then comes the Gentiles. Because now you pick up at it. In verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And now this thing is working itself out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts. And here poetically, all of this has been promised, predicted, and we see fulfillment. And you're awed by what this is teaching you. So if you're breaking this down under the whole idea of the promised success of Christ, then in verses 22 down through verse 26, you see that the Lord's name is declared. In verse 27, at the ends, all the ends of the earth are going to remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. And the book of Revelation speaks of that very fact. But you inch forward, and you get to verse 30. Posterity, in other words, the succeeding generations will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Look at this. For he has done it. Your Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Your New Testament is written in Greek. The New Testament Greek word for this is tetelestai. It is finished. The Old Testament translation of this word is, he has done it. Do you see what has just happened here? First verse and last verse have bookended two significant, powerful statements uttered on that cross. If verses 22 down through verse 26 tell us that the Lord's name is declared, verse 27 through verse 31 tells us the Lord's work is done, and now you are transferred directly then, and you're going to write this down next to verse 31 where it says he's done it. John 19, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Powerful words from the cross. In the midst of distress, no distrust. Which song will you sing? And then the missionaries look at Mahatma Gandhi and in one voice begin to proclaim, When I survey the wondrous cross, which is exactly what David has done for us, 1,000 years prior. We praise you, Father. Thank you.
you are sovereign in complete control. And our Lord has given us a tremendous example of how to be able to meditate upon and apply the truth of the Psalms to the challenges of the hour. What we're praying now, Father, is that you will take these words, you will take these thoughts, and equip our hearts and our minds as we're about to receive the bread and the cup and do it in a way that honors you. And we ask this now in Jesus' name.